It may not be as big as the Navy, but the Coast Guard has facilities, people, and vessels all over the world. Coasties have also been keeping a high tempo of activity. Maintenance and repair and modernization go on continuously. For more on the Coast Guard's priorities for the coming year and how all of this logistics works, at this week's Sea Air Space Conference, I spoke with the Assistant Commandant for Engineering and Logistics, Rear Admiral Carola List. When we talk about our infrastructure, you know, you mentioned 25,000. It's really closer to about 42,000, just shy of. And that's made up of about 6,800 buildings. So that would be like our sector command centers, our small boat stations, our aviation units, and then about 14,000 uh, other set assets, which include piers, docks, uh, lift support systems, our roadways, ramp areas for our hangars. And then you add on top of that about 20,000 aids to navigation, right, which is critical to our maritime transportation system, right? It's about a $5.4 trillion industry, provides 31 million jobs. So pretty critical uh, Coast Guard role in our maritime transportation system. So if it floats, if it flies, if it sits there on the ground, if it sits there with pilings in the water, it's under you. That is correct. Got it. Okay. (laughs) And so how do you prioritize what you go after with respect to re-engineering or rebuilding or just maintaining or even constructing in a given year. That's got to be a big facility exercise all by itself. It, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, we tend to, when you talk about readiness uh, narratives, right, you want to put aircraft in the air, you want to get cutters underway to execute the mission. And then you got the, the infrastructure behind, right? And so, you know, you, you have to prioritize based on those readiness initiatives, And then in terms of our infrastructure, you know, one of the things we do is we try and maintain a condition index of 80% uh, on our most critical infrastructure. And that's based by the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so 80% basically means that that facility is ready and able to execute the mission when needed. And so we kind of target that. You know, coupled with that, we've been uh, working over the last few years with a hurricane supplemental. Right, and as you know, we've had a lot of hurricane damage uh, target on the southeast and and Gulf Coast, and that's about a $1.2 billion price tag. So that's been kind of our priority over the last couple years, just to get at that, to make sure our infrastructure is able to continue to provide uh, support to get the mission done. And uh, and then um, in uh, terms of prioritizing that, you know, it's, it's give and take, right? You work within, sure. a, work, work within a constrained uh, budget, and you have to prioritize to get those things accomplished. And given the budget cycles of federal agencies and the Coast Guard, uh, military or civilian, it's really hard to match the spending plans with what the weather decides to do. And so by the time something could happen that could set you back in terms of weather, severe condition, how do you overcome that budget challenge when you've got to devote resources to mitigating disaster, but it might pull from something that you did anticipate that was normally budgeted? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a tough one, right? So we're not funded, and we certainly have a backlog in our, in our infrastructure, right, that, that we're kind of playing catch up in. You know, we've got some good funding here recently to help kind of get at that. But one of the things that we try and do is we, you know, on all our assets, we do vulnerability assessments. And so when we do rebuilds um, and hardening of our infrastructure, it's really to meet and sustain natural disasters. And so that helps us in terms of keeping uh, our assets up and running. I mean, given the name Coast Guard, then natural disasters are kind of part of your DNA in many ways. I mean, disasters go back before climate change. 
Oh, a- no, absolutely. And, and most of our assets, right, are located along the east, west coast, and, and southern coast of sure. the United States. So absolutely. And over the years, and especially in the recent years, what types of process improvements or overhauls have you made to account for the resiliency that's needed, given the fact that it looks like weather device, weather-related disasters are getting more frequent and more severe. No, absolutely. And that is part of all our vulnerability assessment calculation, right? So a great example is, you know, through the hurricane supplemental, we did a rebuild of one of our units, right, that got hit during, uh, during Hurricane Harvey, right? And so when we did that rebuild, we considered climate change, the potential for greater and more severe hurricanes. That same unit got a subsequent hit uh, from a hurricane and was able to maintain and sustain operations the entire duration of the hurricane. And so so that's how we get at that resiliency piece. So build it higher, build it with more tie downs, build it stronger, and you stay ahead of the game. Absolutely. And every unit, because we're so spread out across uh, the entire U.S., everyone has to be taken, you know, individually when we make that assessment. And looking at the boat ship construction going on, there's a couple of different types of cutters, national security cutter and so forth, that the Coast Guard is undergoing right now. I guess there's several hulls that are actually in process. What is your logistics and engineering input into how those eventual vessels will look. I mean, there's a capability, which is somebody else, but then sustainability, repairability, and so on must come under your command. And how do you how do you get your input in while they're building? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a Coast Guard team effort, right? And as we're working a very comprehensive, integrated logistics support plan, we feed into that, uh, into that plan. And, you know, we've learned a lot for how we currently maintain our assets, both from a organic and a commercial uh, aspect. In fact, just this past week, I had an opportunity to get down to Los Angeles, Long Beach, for a groundbreaking of our offshore patrol cutter uh, maintenance support building. So that's about a 12,000 square foot building down there. And we're taking, you know, taking the vulnerability assessment into consideration. And that's really uh, critical in supporting our first two offshore patrol cutters. Because I've read that uh, with subsequent cutters being built, and there's you know a fleet of these, and, and also the national security cutters, they're actually not all identical. Because as you learn from construction, there might be modifications, or maybe one will be deployed in this manner and one in that manner. So does that complicate and m- maybe raise the cost of future maintenance as the ships vary from hull to hull, even though they're ostensibly the same program? Yeah, so it's so a good question. I mean, part of it is standardization among those cutter fleets, right? And then we have, you know, naval engineering detachments, uh, maintenance and weapons augmentation teams, and those are standard practices regardless of the type of asset. And so part of that, that buys us efficiency, even though we may have structural changes or changes that are, that are varied in terms of equipment on those specific cutters. Got it. So then do you deal directly with the builders and their subcontractors in the engineering and logistics support planning? Absolutely. And working hand-in-hand with our acquisition team as we bring those assets on. And then, you know, they work with us as kind of the technical authority on the engineering side to make sure that we're getting the right product and right support structure for the Coast Guard assets. And just tell us a little bit about your organization, how many people in it and where are they located and how do you oversee all of this? Good question. And so, you know, our headquarters staff is relatively small, but we have logistics centers, right? So we have an aviation logistics center. We have a shore infrastructure logistics center, naval. And so those are kind of our center hubs of expertise that get at both depot level and the organic maintenance. And then 
those units that I talked about, the NEDs, the Naval Engineering Detachments, the MATs, the WATs, are augmentation teams that we have located throughout the country to provide specific support, especially where we have a congregation of assets located. And so a lot of smart folks out there, a lot of leaders out there getting it done, and it makes my job extremely easy. So, And getting back to this construction phase, do you also secure the rights to do as much maintenance in-house as possible? That's always an issue. What do you guarantee the contractor will have the right to repair and maintain versus what the service will? Yeah, so that's all worked out through the acquisition process and how that's balanced. You know, we do uh, most of our uh, O-level, operational level maintenance is done organically, right? But we do use, and it's critical that we get uh, industry and commercial support in terms of specifically dry dock capability, right? Which I think, you know, we uh, we all, I think, are challenged with when you look across uh, the Navy and the Coast Guard in terms of just yard availability. Sure. And so that becomes pretty critical. Now, you have an aviation background. So I do. we haven't talked about helicopters. <laughs> and we forget sometimes the Coast Guard does have lots of things that fly. Yeah. That what's going on in aviation planning, and how does that talk about what's, what's ahead first? As we look across our aviation assets, both from a rotary wing and fixed wing perspective, right? So our rotary wing aircraft, we've had the H-65 Dolphin and uh, 60 Jayhawk now for a number of years, and we're going through a service life extension program to get those through the mid-2030s, you know, and for the, for the 65, early 2040. And so as we maintain those aircraft to get the life limit out of those, we have to look at how are we going to move in the, in the future. And uh, I think uh, as you look, and I think as the Commandant has mentioned, looking at a single rotary wing uh, aircraft, you know, for future, and as we look at what DOD is doing with vertical lift. And then, of course, with our fixed wing assets is continuing, you know, missionization and uh, of those assets to get the mission done as well. So, so your own aviation background must have prepared you well for this because in many ways in aviation, much more so than maybe afloat types of things, the relationship between the aviator and the maintainer is a little bit more day-to-day, a little bit more intimate, a little bit closer, isn't it? And so absolutely. So for an aviation, you know, as an as aviation aeronautical engineer and an operator, so I consider my opera- an operator first and foremost. I mean, you've had that stick engineer. in your hand, right? A- absolutely, and it's working hand-in-hand with the crew. I think certainly that has helped, and from a logistics standpoint, I've had the opportunity to uh, run an air detachment on a Navy vessel, uh, was faced with the challenge of relocating a forward operating base uh, after 9-11. So just tying in the logistics and the continued maintenance to ensure that we had seamless operations to continue mission. So certainly that, and then uh, also my experience in acquisitions uh, running uh, our uh, response boat medium program uh, as well. So I think all that coupled has uh, given me the skills I need for this position today. All right, so what's your message to young women that have a STEM perhaps bent or an operational bent or just an adventure bent, should they join the Coast Guard now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I may be biased to the Coast Guard, but uh, but I'd say certainly I think the message I have is there are no doors that are closed. So pursue your dream, pursue what you want. And, you know, if you can't, if you can't achieve it, you know, the first time through, then keep just keep that determination, keep trying. And, uh, and uh, at one point, you'll be successful to achieve anything that you put your mind to. Rear Admiral Carola List is Assistant Commandant for Engineering and Logistics at the Coast Guard. I spoke with her at the Navy League's Sea Air Space Conference, and we'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used. 
that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, 
as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.